Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline. And today's episode is called Harry Podcast Through the Trapdoor. So let's start with a brief synopsis of the chapter. Everyone at Hogwarts is excited about finishing their exams, but Harry's scar keeps hurting and he's constantly worrying about the stone and about Voldemort. Harry thinks back to when Haggard received a dragon egg from a stranger in a pub and suddenly gets suspicious. The trio confronts Hagrid and finds out that he drunkenly told the cloaked stranger in the pub how to get past Fluffy. They try to go tell Dumbledore, but McGonagall tells them he's been sent away and dismisses them when they say someone is going to steal the stone. After their initial attempts to waylay Snape fail, Harry decides he needs to go out under the cloak that night to try to get the stone first, and Ron and Hermione insist on joining him. Neville catches them in the common room as they are about to leave and tries to stop them, but Hermione casts a spell that puts him in a full-body bind. Upon reaching the trap door, the trio work together to get past Fluffy, escape Devil's Snare, catch the correct winged key on broomsticks, play life-size wizard's chest, during which Ron is knocked out, sneak past a thankfully already knocked out troll, and choose the correct potion from a logic puzzle. In the potion room, they discover only one person can move forward, so Hermione goes back to get help, and Harry walks into the final room. Yeah, wow, so there's a lot to cover there. Um, let's try to keep this concise so that we don't run over an hour <laughs> on the podcast. Let's start with McGonagall and Dumbledore, because they're our big authority figures in this book, and they kind of fail our heroes in this chapter in some ways. Definitely. Yeah. I think especially Dumbledore for, for sort of getting tricked away. Not that he really could have... Well, I'm not sure. Maybe he should have known that, that there was a trap coming, basically. Yeah, I think we can talk about that, but maybe we should start with McGonagall, because they do have an interaction with McGonagall. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what happens during that? Sure, yeah. So from what I remember, McGonagall basically tells them Dumbledore's gone away, and then Harry panics and just throws caution to the four winds and says, look, it's about the Sorcerer's Stone, so we need to try to stop whoever whoever's going to try to steal it he starts to say snape but then he catches himself and mm-hmm. says that would be a bad idea and and basically mcgonagall says look it's very well protected and you guys are silly for worrying about it it's going to be totally fine and also how did you know about the stone and they don't really tell her she doesn't really give any follow-ups to that yeah she sort of says like how do you know and harry just cuts her off and goes like i know someone's going to try to steal it it doesn't matter mm-hmm. how i know about it um, but she doesn't believe them. She doesn't take them seriously. And then, because she doesn't take them seriously, they basically decide we have to try to waylay Snape ourselves and and try to become a barrier to getting to the stone. So they set Hermione on his tail, Harry and Ron stand outside Fluffy's room and guard him, sort of. And um, that plan falls apart almost immediately. McGonagall happens to walk by, probably to check on Fluffy, and sees the two of them there and gets very mad. She says, you, do you think that you're harder to get past than a pack of enchantments? And she's right about that. I mean, they are oh, yeah. only 11. <laughs> Did they, they really think they were going to be able to stand up to presumably Snape, but mm-hmm. but whomever is going to try to steal the stone? No, they, they don't stand a chance, really. And Hermione fails at waylaying Snape in the staff room because when she stands outside to wait for Professor Flitwick, as she says, Snape says, oh, I'll just go and get him. He's just right inside. And so she panics and, and flees. Mm-hmm. So... 
all of their plans having failed, and with no one to turn to, they think. The trio decides that they have to go after the stone themselves. Right. And so, as we said, McGonagall is right. They don't stand a chance against whomever's trying to get past the stone. Um, they're only 11, and even though they do manage to do that eventually, you know, she's right. However, I think that really McGonagall made a mistake here because I think she should have taken them more seriously. I think she should have been more concerned that they even know what the stone is, let alone where it is, and that they suspect someone's trying to steal it. I mean, even if McGonagall has no suspicions and thinks everything's perfectly protected, she should be concerned that these first years know so much about it and the fact that she she is now in charge of the school because Dumbledore is away for unknown reasons. So Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, I don't know what was going on with her that day, but I think she should at least... Talk to Hagrid, maybe contact Dumbledore, try to figure out what's going on, and at least question the kids more about what they know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's a few red flags here, really. First of all, the stone is supposed to be a complete secret. And the fact that three 11-year-olds have found out not only what it is, but where it is and what's guarding it um, is, is really concerning. And I think it's really Professor McGonagall's stubbornness here that prevents her from sort of following up on those on those red flags, um, asking Hagrid about what happened, about what they know, you know, maybe sending an owl to Dumbledore and asking him to come back because, you know, there's a security risk now. Like, even if she didn't believe them that someone was going to try to steal the stone, it is a security risk that three first-year students now know about this thing that they're guarding and what it is. Exactly. And she does, does she know that Harry has a cloak and it go, goes out at night no. sometimes? Okay, she, she does doesn't know. know. But Dumbledore knows. So uh, speaking of Dumbledore, I was also wondering, you know, what exactly happened? I I assume that Quirrell sends a fake message to him to go to London. Yeah, I think we can assume that that Quirrell basically spoofs a Ministry of Magic letterhead or something mm-hmm. like that, an official letter asking him to come in. Maybe it's for his duties on the Wizengamot or, you know, as an advisory capacity to Cornelius Fudge or something like that. Basically, he gets called by the Ministry of Magic to come in, and so he leaves to go do that. I just wonder more about that, because does Dumbledore really believe this letter? I mean, we don't know the details of it. We don't know how it was communicated to him. Maybe it was very mm-hmm. convincing, but I feel like Dumbledore is obviously a very smart and skilled wizard, and I feel like he should have maybe had a suspicion. And I guess later in the next chapter, he does say that by the time he got there, he realized he should he should be back at Hogwarts. And we don't know if that's because he realized it was fake or he was concerned about what was going on at Hogwarts. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know. But I still think that the administration of the school here fails in some ways Mm -hmm. when they have this huge security risk going on. Um, Also, I was wondering what Snape is doing right now and what are are his thought processes? Yeah, so... I mean, as we've pointed out, the security of the school has failed in multiple points, and and the administration isn't really doing enough. Um, And I think that's a great question about what Snape's doing right now, because honestly, he seems more concerned about Harry's nighttime prowlings and the the trio sort of poking their noses in than he does about, presumably, about the fact that Quirrell is about to try to steal the stone. Mm -hmm. And Snape, if if he would think about it, would realize... This is the perfect opportunity for someone to try to steal the stone. Dumbledore is away. We don't know for how long. And, you know, that all the, all the pieces are in place. So, in theory, Snape should be really on his guard and really looking out for anything that could lead him toward 
um, preventing Quirrell from reaching it. But instead, he sort of spends his time and energy chastising the trio for sort of snooping around. So now on to Neville's huge involvement in this chapter. So first of all, this theme that we've been noticing of the four of them being tied together. We've been talking about this since we started this book, how the four of them are tied together from the very beginning, even though it's the trio that's talked about and is solidified. But really, this is um, one of the major times that they are brought together as, in some ways, a foursome, even though they are in opposing positions at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So we see here that Neville is really brave and is willing to face humiliation and attack for what he believes is right. And it's shown that he really takes Harry's previous words to heart. Um, He clearly looks up to Harry and wants to be more like him, someone who's really brave and heroic and stands up for what's right. So I think that he has really, you know, made a huge brave move here. And I'm kind of pissed off at the trio because while it seems like you know, you can, it makes sense in some ways why they had to do, they felt like we are like the heroes here and we have to just like, you know, get anything in our path out of the way, even if it's poor Neville. So I just think that it's kind of rude of the trio to do, first of all, curse Neville, you know, and then just really not, they dismiss him. I know they're stressed, but, you know, he could either help or give some advice, you know, He's the same age as them, and I think that they think, oh, we're smarter than everyone, and Neville knows nothing. Yeah, and it really is like, it's a, it's a moment where they basically have a choice. They could either, like, tell Neville everything, um, which would take some time, and maybe he would understand, or they could just brush brush him off, try to get past him, and hope that he doesn't hate them too much for it afterwards and basically they choose the latter but i wonder you know what would have happened if they had just talked to him about it mm-hmm. you know neville is very brave but he's not unreasonable he would have probably i think either said something along the lines of i'm going with you like he did during the midnight duel mm-hmm. or he would have said like let's go and find a teacher mm-hmm. let's go and talk to mcgonagall like we can convince her that mm-hmm. this is a problem we we need their help. Yeah. We need to not just rush off like a bunch of 11-year-olds trying to stop an actual dark wizard. Exactly. And, you know, this will come up a lot in later books, but we know that in a lot of ways, Neville is more mature than all of, you know, anyone in his class that we know about. He's gone through a lot of trauma and knows a lot about the world in ways that, you know, Harry knows too, but in a different way. And I think that Mm -hmm. Neville may seem not as book smart or, you know, nervous and anxious kid, but he's not naive. And I agree. I think that he would agree that they needed to do something about it. And he probably would have said, let's go to McGonagall. And, you know, maybe McGonagall would have dealt with this in a safer way for all involved. Yeah, maybe. But I think the main reason why this was such a critical moment in the chapter is basically that Neville has had a huge change of heart. He's basically valuing the Gryffindor traits of bravery and nobility um, far higher than he used to. And he's taken it upon himself to sort of become like that ideal that he's striving towards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it solidifies this turning point of, you know, this is a trio, is not a foursome. And 
it's never really going to be a foursome, yeah. even though Neville will become extremely important. Yeah, it, it's it the the trio basically makes the decision that they don't want to include Neville mm-hmm. in on this plan. Yeah, you're right. It, it it sort of was the defining moment in that. But as we're going to see next chapter, Dumbledore is going to value Neville's bravery here in a similar way that he ends up valuing the tremendous bravery and some would say recklessness of the trio in trying to get past all these enchantments to protect the school and the stone. Mm -hmm. He is pivotal in Gryffindor winning the house cup, basically. Mm -hmm. So now that we're in the real meat of the chapter, um, it's very action heavy. And I think that's really cool for a lot of readers. Um, They get to see the trio sort of fighting their way over all these obstacles. And it's really exciting. Definitely one of my favorite chapters when I was, you know, really, really young and reading this book for the first time. But now that I'm older and I sort of have read a bunch of old classical stuff too, I'm noticing a lot more of ties to that sort of thing, especially Greek mythology. Mm -hmm. Um, We've already talked about the fluffy Cerberus connection, of course, but there's also a symbolic connection here as well. This chapter is literally a descent to an underworld, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, underneath the school, underneath the world, through the trap door. And Cerberus is guarding it. Um, and so it really mirrors the the journey of Heracles and other Greek heroes who have traveled to Hades. Um, and, you know, they have trials and tribulations. There's a, usually a goal at the end. In this case, it's literally the secret to eternal life mm-hmm. is waiting for them at the end of this journey. And interestingly and very importantly, the heroes are not interested in that goal. They're just trying to protect it. Right. They're not trying to get it for themselves. So that, that ends up being a critical piece of this puzzle. But in a lot of ways, it mirrors Greek, um, Greek literature and Greek um, romanticism, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, the hero's journey, the, the romantic hero, like, like Heracles. Okay, so we're not going to go into so much detail about each of the rooms, even though they're all really fascinating. But what we are going to talk about is the ways in which each task um, leads the trio to help each other and showcase their different talents and mm-hmm. personal like character strengths when first of all fluffy who they have already encountered harry elects to go first so he elects to go down into the trap door and has hermione continue to play the flute for him because he's kind of sacrificing himself he doesn't know what's down there if it's safe to jump so harry says something like if anything happens to me, like if you don't hear from me, basically when I jump down here, you know, go send an owl to Dumbledore, don't follow me. And so this really is a sacrifice. And this really is, you know, Harry's MO throughout the whole books is that you can come with me, but I'm going first and I want to be the one to, you know, die or get in the most danger if possible. Yeah, that's totally right. And and it actually reminds me of something else that happened in this chapter that's not usually considered one of the like trials and tribulations that they go through, but I just thought it was fascinating when I was rereading this, is that they encounter Peeves on the way to Fluffy, and Harry just has this ingenious idea to pretend that he's the Bloody Baron because they're under the invisibility cloak and they're invisible, and he knows that Peeves is afraid of the Bloody Baron, so he pretends to be him, and then they manage to like get past Peeves without him causing a ruckus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a critical moment because Peeves could have like woken everybody in the castle up and got them in tr- huge trouble. Right. Um, but Harry's basically cleverness, which we don't see from Harry a whole lot, Yeah. Uh, basically saves the day, which is really cool. I know. I mean, that was... I, I was also struck by that when rereading this is how did Harry 
one remember about the Bloody Baron and to like think that quickly to impersonate the Bloody Baron and in a way to actually make Peeves stop was very, very impressive. Yeah, it was very cool. So the next uh, trial for them is the Devil's Snare. Harry lands on something soft and tells them it's safe to jump. They jump in and then they immediately get ensnared in this big plant. And Hermione... She's really the hero of this part of the story. She recognizes the danger that they're in and escapes. And then she remembers how to stop it. She remembers that it fears fire. Um, But she panics. And in her panic, she forgets that she's a witch and Mm -hmm. that she can conjure fire from nothing. And so she's like, I don't have any wood. I can't make a fire. I don't know what Mm -hmm. to do. Luckily, Ron keeps his head and reminds her that she is a witch and that she can conjure fire. Yeah. And so they escape. And so really, it's it's a great representation of how they can work together well. Because mm-hmm. Hermione has all this cleverness and like book smarts and stuff. But maybe she's not the best in a crisis. So Ron and Harry, to some extent, helps keep her grounded in reality and remember, you know, okay, breathe, think about where we are and what we're doing. Um, and then they solve it together. Mm-hmm. And it's just an interesting also... Um, reflection of you know their backgrounds because obviously Hermione is muggle-born so her instinct in a crisis is to go to her instinct so what do I know about fire wood but Ron you know grew up wizarding household so his instinct is wands and so you know it's it makes sense in a way to think like when you're in that panic mode what's your original thought about the thing you're trying to do yeah and (laughs) it's like she's only been in this world for like a year yeah so like what she knows is like matches timber so the next scene um, is the flying keys. So Harry identifies that they need to use the broomsticks to fly and find the correct key to open the next door. So he obviously is the main talent here. He uses his skills as a seeker to catch the correct key. But it is important that Ron and Hermione help pin the key down for him. So they are both flying around and trying to you know, chase the key down so that it can be mm-hmm. in front of Harry. And so they're helping as well, even though... At this point, Quidditch isn't a strong suit for either of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's important to note, yeah, as we keep saying, like this is all about teamwork. Mm-hmm. It's all about showing how they work together well. Um, so, yeah, it is it is important that Ron and Hermione, despite their, you know, they don't have incredible skill on broomsticks, especially Hermione, but they do help. And the next trial was the Wizards chess game. Um, so Ron, as, of course, the best chess player of the three, is the one who sort of wins the game through his strategies and through his own sacrifice. But interestingly, and I thought this was an interesting like symbolism, um, even though Ron is really the one who wins it for them through his strategic victory, Harry is the one who actually checkmates the king mm-hmm. and sort of gets to move on. And that kind of mirrors like the overall story here too. Mm-hmm. Because like, you know, Ron actually does like sacrifice himself for Harry to move forward mm-hmm. and, and to progress. Um, and Harry is going to get a lot of the glory but it was really Ron that like did it for him. And it might be one of those things that sort of sits in the back of Ron's head after a while and is like, you know, do, does he resent Harry a little bit for getting all this attention when really Ron knows that it's always been them working together? You yeah, know, I think it is about that. probably symbolic of the rest of the series in a way. And it's also, even besides Ron's potential resentment, I think it's symbolic that, you know, the trio can help, and even the next part when Hermione leaves too. The trio can help, and they are integral, and he wouldn't be able to do it without them. But Harry is always the one who's going to, you know, checkmate the king. Like, he, mm-hmm. in the end, he's always going to be the one to defeat 
evil. And so I think that that is, um, it's like faded in a way yeah. that we'll talk about a lot in the rest of the series. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't, hadn't made that, that deep a connection to it. That's really <laughs> cool. So it's like, you know, the, the other two are there to help and they, they make sacrifices too, but ultimately it's Harry that has to make the final move. So the next room, they don't even have to fight anything. The troll is already knocked out. And if you had been paying attention to the Halloween events and everything that went on there and how it was a little bit fishy, um, you might remember that Quirrell was the one who reported that there was a troll in the dungeons. And now they're in what must be Quirrell's enchantment room, and it's a troll. And I think the most um, astute readers would note that this doesn't really make a lot of sense. If Quirrell uses a troll as his you know, obstacle to get past, why would he freak out when there's a troll in the dungeons? Mm-hmm. He would know exactly what to do in that situation if he has so much experience with trolls. So it's really our, our last big foreshadowing hint that it is in fact Quirrell who's waiting for us at the other end. Mm-hmm. So the final room we see in this chapter is the potions puzzle room. So this is a really fun chapter, I think, to read because you get to try to solve the logic puzzle. And um, Hermione's reason and logics do solve the puzzle. Um, Harry's really basically not involved in this at all. Um, <laughs> but they can't, in terms of figuring it out, but they can't both advance to the final room or the final confrontation. So Harry elects to go. Again, in some ways, he knows that he needs to be the one and sends Hermione back to rescue Ron and get help from Dumbledore, which in this point is, again, I think, a very smart move that it's so amazing to think about the fact that they are 11 because they're able to reason and delegate tasks in a (laughs) very impressive way. So that's what happens. Um... I just personally love this part of the chapter because I think it's fun. And I remember when we got to read it out loud in second grade and um, my teacher had us all try to solve the puzzle and it was very fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and many people have done really lengthy analyses on this part of the chapter because it is a really fun logic puzzle. Um, but ultimately, without looking at the potions and noting which ones are big and small, um, you can't actually solve it. Mm-hmm. There's two possibilities, but... If you know which ones, which bottles are are large and which ones are small, then you can solve it. Mm-hmm. So some major themes of this whole experience in this chapter, we talked about the trio and how that solidifies their trust and propels them forward together um, in future books. Um, this is also the chapter where Harry decides essentially that he'd rather die trying to stop Voldemort's return than to stand idly by. So even though he doesn't know who is trying to steal the stone, he at this point knows that it is for Voldemort's return. Mm-hmm. And um, he feels like he has a responsibility and just a need to sacrifice himself, if need be, to stop Voldemort from coming back because he is so touched by this um, in his family and in his life that he knows that he needs to stop Voldemort from ever coming back. Yeah, and he, and he says it's very important, actually, this, this passage. We're not going to read the whole monologue, but Harry does monologue for a bit, and he says, like, Voldemort killed my parents, remember? And, mm-hmm. like, he's not going to ever let that go. Like, right. He's, he's always going to have this drive to always try to stop him and foil his plans at every turn because of that. So it, it created an innate desire in him to fight this evil personally, not just to team up with other people 
to maybe foil some plans here or there, but like I need to be the one to stop this. And there is a moment here in this chapter um, where Hermione and Ron decide that they're coming too. When Harry says, like, I'm going to go tonight. I'm going to try to stop them. I'm going to go under the cloak. And Ron says, do you think it would cover all three of us? And Harry's like, what? And they're like, yeah, we're coming too, obviously. Like, Mm -hmm. how do you think you're going to get past all the obstacles on your Mm -hmm. own? No way. Mm -hmm. And it's a big moment, not just because it, you know, really solidifies them as a team for this book. But also for like all of the books, basically, they've decided that they're going to ally themselves with Harry's burden of trying to defeat Voldemort. And it will be referenced actually in Deathly Hallows when Harry kind of turns to them and says like, you know, you guys can turn back now if you want. Like, I know that I have to do this, but you don't like you could still lead full lives like and not not sacrifice yourselves for me. And I think Hermione says something like, we decided a long time ago that we would be with you to the end. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And it brings the the story full circle in a really nice way. Yeah. So the last major moment in this chapter before Harry moves on, you know, they've decided Hermione needs to go back. And Hermione is hesitating and saying goodbye to him. And I think she genuinely believes that he's probably going to die at this point. Um, or at least she's worried about she's it. She's definitely worried about it, and I'm sure Harry is too, but um, we'll just read a little bit of this passage. Hermione's lip trembled, and she suddenly dashed at Harry and threw her arms around him. Hermione! Harry, you're a great wizard, you know. I'm not as good as you, said Harry, very embarrassed, as she let go of him. Me, said Hermione. Books and cleverness. There are more important things. Friendship and bravery and... Oh, Harry, be careful! So here we see this genuine emotion and, you know, a hint of, you know, maybe a crush that Hermione has on Harry, um, which is something we can talk about in further books and debate. But I think at this point, you know, she probably does. And she also is just genuinely feeling so much emotion for this friend that they are sacrificing themselves for in ways. And it's just feeling like she has invested so much And she doesn't know. She doesn't want him to go alone. You know, she's so worried about him. And there's also genuine admiration here Mm -hmm. from Hermione, who seems to value, like, books and cleverness, really. You know, those seem to be her main character traits. But here we see probably why she's a Gryffindor to begin with, because she doesn't value those things. She is those things, but she doesn't value them. She Mm -hmm. values friendship and bravery. Mm -hmm. And that's what Harry is. And I think she, yeah, it's like genuine admiration for, for who he is and what he's doing and the heroism that he's demonstrated already and that he's demonstrating now saying, I'm going to go alone. You go back, get Ron, get help, and I'm going to try to hold him off. And looking back at this same page right before the part I just read, um, just want to read a couple of lines, which I think actually really emphasize kind of every book. Um, <laughs> so... Um, they're talking about, you know, what's going to happen in the next room. And Hermione says, but Harry, what if you know who's with him? And Harry says, well, I was lucky once, wasn't I? I might get lucky again. And I, I think that's kind of... <laughs> that's every book. Every book, you know, he, was, he, he continues to be lucky and defeat Voldemort or evil each time. And I think that that is just a really good representation of what happens. As we've said before, Harry is quite lucky. And just as our last point for this chapter, I think I should read the final line because I think it's really great 
It's a great setup for the next chapter. It's a great end to this chapter. There was already someone there, but it wasn't Snape. It wasn't even Voldemort. Thank you all so much for listening to Harry Podcast Through the Trapdoor. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion of this chapter. Feel free to email us at harrypodcast7 at gmail.com with any questions or comments you have, and stay tuned for next time when we conclude our discussion of Book 1 with Chapter 17, The Man with Two Faces, and we make an exciting new announcement. I'm Madeline. And I'm David, and we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.